Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. All right, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go ahead and get out your Bibles. We are going to finish this book tonight. I feel a little loud. Do I, do I sound loud? Yeah, someone said yes. All right. We should make the appropriate adjustments. Need to fix my EQ. I don't know what that means, but... All right. Man, I am so excited to worship Jesus with you through this text. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. And if you're a note taker and you need a title, I've got one. The title of this sermon is, The King Isn't Ashamed of His People. The King Isn't Ashamed of His People. And so Jesus, our King, as we've seen in this series so far, is glorious. He's majestic. And as we've seen in the cross and resurrection, he is for us. We've tried to show how every reality in the Bible gets its force, its power, its grounding, its true application in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the person and work of Christ. And now, tonight, we have a bigger portion of Scripture to work through so that we get to see even more of that reality and how we all might leave here changed if we truly believe this and live it out. And man, I'm excited. So I'm going to pray one more time. And I ask that you just don't listen to me, don't tune out. Uh, if you're a believer in the room, pray that God would give you eyes to see that we might truly receive this um, and that people who, who in here maybe tonight have never surrendered to Christ, that they would see clearly what he's done for them. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Um, Father, we just want to honor Jesus as king. We want to beg you now that we might see the glories of your word. Um, who are we that you are mindful of us? And we just ask that by your spirit, you would overwhelm our hearts with your love. We earnestly desire that this place would be a gospel place tonight. Sins would be conquered, that mission, living on mission would be resolved, that we are sustained in our suffering, that shame would die. And we know it's all because of you, all because of Christ. And so it's in his name and his power that we pray. Amen. All right, Hebrews 2.5. Look at your Bibles if you don't have one. Up on the screen, they should be up there. Hebrews 2.5. I thought I put it up there. Did I, Tony? Oh, no. Okay, maybe not. Hopefully you have a Bible. I thought I put it up there. There we go. Okay, Hebrews 2.5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, I want to stop right there. Another four word. Remember last week, we're learning whenever you're reading the Bible to look for those logic words that show us the meaning of the text. And so this idea of four here shows us that the author is continuing the argument that we've already seen from the previous chapters of this book. Always got to be on the lookout for this. And so as a quick recap, because God has spoken fully and finally in Christ, and because he is the king that deserves our worship, that deserves the worship from angels, 
we should, remember this in chapter two, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And we shouldn't neglect the salvation that we have. We don't want to drift. And now, we see more glorious things about Jesus that we get to enjoy together already in verse five. So what is the reality at play in this verse? Here's what's going on. God, our Father, clearly, in this text, has not subjected the world to come to angels. He has subjected the world to come to Jesus Christ, our King. The world to come, which we're going to define in a second, will be the kingdom of our King and our kingdom. This world to come language is biblical shorthand for the full and final salvation that will be brought in full when Jesus returns to get us and bring us back fully redeemed from sin and all suffering. And whether you realize it or not, this is what you long for. You long for this, the world to come. Jesus really will put an end to this mess and bring in a world that will never end and only have perfect joy, no more death, no more sin, no more suffering forever. And right here in verse 5, we're seeing this was not subjected to angels, but as we're going to continue to see, was subjected to our king. And so before we see the biblical arguments for the beauty of this reality, I want to explain a very important concept for you in understanding how your life in Christ works and a really helpful way to view the Bible so you can understand it. And that's the idea, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, the idea of already but not yet. Already but not yet. We talk about Jesus' kingdom, his reign and rule. When we're talking about that, we're talking about something that is already happening but is not yet in its fullest place and fullest power. For instance, in this room, we have people who have surrendered to King Jesus and are subjected to his rule and reign in their life. We also have people who are not. You're maybe ignorant of Jesus, or you're rebelling against him, or you hate him. Either way, we see that the full and final reign of Christ is already here, but not yet completed. In the world to come, the Bible talks about, only those who surrender to Christ in this lifetime will be there. Everybody else will be separated away from Christ forever. And also, another example of this already but not yet, for those of us in the room who do know and love Jesus, if you're honest, you still experience the brokenness of sin and shame, right? No one walked in here who loves Jesus claiming that you had a perfect week of no sin, I know a lot of y'all started discipleship groups this week. It would be weird of you during the time of confession and fighting sin together. They were like, all right, Dustin, how are you doing? I was like, honestly, I'm seven for seven today. Like, no sins at all. Um, that would be dishonest, right? But on a more serious note, you don't need some silly illustration to understand that your fight, your life in Christ still involves killing sin that you hate. So... Jesus has already redeemed you by faith, but we are not yet fully redeemed from the presence of sin. 1 Corinthians 15.1 talks about the gospel, and it says, the gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So there's this idea that in Christ we are already redeemed, but still awaiting a redemption that hasn't happened fully yet. And this is good news. Please don't let that be theological jargon you need to understand, this means a lot of really good things for you, but one thing it definitely means is there really will be a last time you struggle with whatever that sin is. 
You understand that? The sin that you limped in here with, the sin that you continue to confess and you feel like you just haven't been able to see actual victory over, there will be a last time. <laughs> now, we pray in your growth that it's during this lifetime, but one day, fully redeemed. Or, you want to zoom out, look at the world around us, the fact that there are still chains of sin and suffering in the world right now shows us that the full reign of Christ is still yet to come. But at the same time, the church really is on the move. The church cannot be stopped. But also at the same time, it seems like darkness is still having strongholds in this world. Already, but not yet. We are just in an overlap age, and a good way to remember that in that process, you're thinking, how can I make sense of Jesus' kingdom at hand and moving and brokenness still in the world and in me? We are in an already but not yet world. And so with a lot of biblical realities, what you'll see is that you experience it now in the spirit, but one day you will be fully redeemed to be able to fully enjoy the realities of all that God promises in his word. That means you can't lose. The church can't lose. Your sin will not have the final say. Already but not yet. So, we're going to see this idea play out a lot in Hebrews, but honestly, it's a good stabilizer for your soul when you're walking through a world that seems dominated by darkness. Jesus' salvation is final. It is already completed, but not yet fully consummated. It's a big deal for us to understand. Let's look at verse 6. Um, so in this, in this part, he's going to start using um, Old Testament language to flesh out this idea of... Jesus having the world to come subjected to him. Look at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, which I just want to pause. This is not that deep, but I think that's hilarious. This is like the time whenever you're, like you know it's somewhere in the Bible, but you like don't want to awkwardly Google it on your phone, and it's just like, well, it's, you know, it's in the New Testament, or you know, I think it's somewhere in, I don't know, testified somewhere, right? Um, I'm not pretending the author of Hebrews doesn't know his Bible, but it just struck me funny that he says it this way. So, it has been testified somewhere, quote, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So there's some Psalm 8 work happening here. Where was it testified? Testified in Psalm 8. And the author is using Psalm 8, 4 through 6, to show the reality that God has subjected the world to come to Christ. And I love verse 3 of this psalm as well. It celebrates the glorious creative power of God that sets up these humble questions where we should be asking, why in the world would God be mindful of us mere humans? And so the psalms testify to us. They're the words of God, 150 songs inspired for us to worship God through, covers all the range of emotions and are great ways to shape your prayers. Now, I'll be honest, there's some commentary debate on the exact nature of Psalm 8. Um, most of the discussion involves whether or not this psalm is explicitly talking about Jesus Christ or humanity in general. I think the best way to view this is to see it as talking about humanity in general and Jesus fulfilling and being the perfect human. Because it is true that God made man and woman to rule and reign the earth under his rule, and we obviously rebelled and have ruined the world through our sin. And it is true that Jesus came as the true and better human, who, by the way, loves to refer to himself as the Son of Man, to redeem and rule in, that, in a way that we should have died to pay the penalty for our rebellion and resurrected to restore us to this role 
uh, with him reigning forever. And that is already happening, but not yet in full. And so Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, and Psalm 8 show us, as the people of God, a beautiful way to worship. Let's relook at it here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or son of man, or the son of man, that you care for him? So I just want to pause and ask, have you ever actually asked this in humility? What is a man that you are mindful of him? This is a good prayer. Do you realize how ridiculous it is that God would be mindful of us? We don't deserve this. Think of all the kindness in the world. Even for non-Christians. Um, theologians call this idea of God's kindness extended to people who rebel against him as common grace. Uh, Matthew 5.45 shows us this reality. It should be on the screen. Um, so that you may, yeah, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. One thing you can't miss is the idea that God is mindful of you. He is kind. And part of what your heart should be doing is that you should be humbled. Even for non-Christians in the room, can you just stop and consider this? God is so kind. You're breathing right now. You have food in your belly. You have roof over your head. God is kind. But for Christians in the room, how much more kindness has he shown you in Christ and his word? The verses continue. Look at verse 7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Now, it is true that human beings are below angels for a little while during our time in these broken bodies. We are lower than the angels, yet still crowned with honor. You need to understand that nobody puts more value on human beings than God. But it's also true that one day we will judge angels. I know that sounds crazy, but you can just read 1 Corinthians 6. Search it out for yourself. It's just true. One day we will judge angels as a part of God's rule and reign. That happens in the full and final world to come. But this psalm starts to shine to its fullest extent when we see it in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the creator of angels, yet he was put a little lower in the fact that he took on human flesh. He suffered as we do. He went through the weakness of being human, and this suffering ultimately led to the cross where he died for us. And in his death, he conquered sin, the devil, and death defeated. And in his rising, he was crowned with resurrection, glory, and honor. Then look at verse 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. All things put under his rule. Creation, people, everything. And then the author of Hebrews adds some commentary to it. Keep looking at, your, at the Bible. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is another verse showing us the already but not yetness of the word of God and the world that we are actually in. Two verses from Romans to show you this in another way. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Groaning, longing for this new world to come. The whole creation, including you, is groaning for full redemption that has been purchased and applied to followers of Jesus now. And then Romans 16, 20. Another idea here I want you to see. 
It's talking to the church. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Satan, in some sense, was crushed on the cross and resurrection, but also one day soon he will be crushed and gone for good. So I want you to pause and feel the weight here. These verses are calling us to worship Jesus for the fact that he became man, was crowned with honor, and started the undoing of everything terrible and cursed in the world. And we participate in that as we surrender to King Jesus now through faith and repentance. And as we live, that faith works itself out in love for people as we share the good news of, of our king's victory and use our lives to care for the people that he loves. So please understand, creation is still heading towards death. Things will die, people will die, you will die one day. This isn't something that we get to look away from in the name of Christian hope. True Christian hope is grounded in actual reality. Death is coming for us all because that is the right curse for sin. But Jesus Christ has defeated the curse and death, and that means resurrection is coming too. And so as followers of, of the king, we get to have true optimism, a spirit-empowered mindset and framework that understands the curse but knows that the resurrection is stronger. Now, we could go in a million different ways, but we got to stay in Hebrews 2. So I'm just going to pause there and go to verse 9. But that is a beautiful thing for you to consider in your own life. Let's look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Are you seeing this? This is all about Jesus. Another biblical way to look at the reason our king was crowned with glory and honor comes in this verse. So it says, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why was he crowned with glory and honor? Look at the text. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you understand this? He was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. Only Jesus could do this. Only Jesus could live his whole life perfectly. Only Jesus could be the perfect sacrifice for sins and be accepted by his Father with the resurrection crown of glory and honor. And keep looking at the logic. It gets better. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it gets better because I feel like all the Bible is as good as it gets, but I realize I say that sometimes. So when I say that, I don't mean that this part's better than the last. Okay? I'm just more excited about it. Okay. Why did he go through the suffering of death? Look at the text so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Oh my goodness. He is crowned as the king of all honor and glory because made lower than the angels, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for you. So we have to stop and consider death tonight. What is dying? Defining death biblically. Biblically speaking, dying is a separation. In our physical death, our bodies are separated from our souls. In spiritual death, our souls are separated from God. It's important to remember that part of the curse of sin is both kinds of death. All of us will die now because we have sinned. And that's true for all of us, Christians or not. At some point, our bodies will stop working. The Word says that the wages of sin is death. 
But for the non-Christian, someone who rebels against King Jesus, will not surrender in repentance and faith, you are still in the spiritual death that you were born into. It's true that you will die, body and soul separated, but you need to understand right now your soul is dead, separate from God. So it's a scary and healthy and right and good thing that you consider the fact that you will die one day. It has a way of clarifying what really matters. It has a way of making you think about eternity. The reality is that when you die, you will either be with the Lord in spirit or away from him in spirit. And that death is exactly what Jesus tasted for everyone. Do you understand that Jesus, the God-man, actually died. Jesus Christ himself, because of the grace of God, tasted death for you. Now, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven other passages that if you want to talk more about the idea of death, um, sounds really funny, but if you want to come talk to me about real life and death stuff in your life, I would love to wrestle with these through you, but you need to stop and pause and realize this is an actual thing that we all must face. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So before I break down this verse, I want to take out the qualifying phrases for a moment so that we see the main point. All right, so we're going to take out for whom and by whom all things exist and in bringing many sons to glory. So we see the the sentence that is happening right before us in verse 10. For it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was how it should be. It was fitting in order for God to maintain his justice against sin and demonstrate his love and mercy. There had to be a perfect sacrifice that would take the just punishment for sin and take the place of those who he loves and who would take it by faith. The founder of our salvation, Jesus Christ, salvation is actually possible. Now, don't get thrown off by the idea of it saying Jesus became perfect. Uh, Commentators agree that Jesus is and was always perfect, but he still had to live out his perfection in active obedience as he put on flesh to live for us. So his active obedience of his life and death was him living into the perfection that he already was. He was perfect and was perfect through his suffering and his death. And it was because of the perfect submission that his sacrifice could be perfect and that he could be the founder and source of our salvation back to God. Now, back to the qualifiers to make that even better. First one, for whom and by whom all things exist. Just another reminder that this loving Savior who literally took death for you is the same glorious King who created all things and sustains all things and owns all things. And he is mindful of you. My goodness, if we could actually believe that. The one who made you is the one who tasted death for your rebellion. And not only that, another qualifier makes us explode with gospel power in bringing many sons to glory. Don't you love this? Death doesn't have to be the end of your story. For the followers of Jesus in the room, your journey ends in glory. No more death. Jesus Christ did the work necessary, tasted death for everyone, that if they should come by faith, 
Though they may die, it ends in glory. And some of us are in the room right now. This is some of you are on your way to this. You've been brought by the grace of Jesus, and you're on your way to glory. There are many more out there in your classrooms and in our city and on our campus that need to know this. They have to know that the sacrifice for sins has been accepted, and the honorable and glorious King Jesus stands ready to receive anyone who comes by faith. You want to live for the king? Radical kingdom living looks like letting the people around you know that their death doesn't have to be the end. Telling everyone we know, how could we not? God is not only mindful of you, the sacrifice for sins has been accepted. Verse 11 continues this thought. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Let's define some terms. He who sanctifies, Christ. Those who are sanctified, those who believe in him. And the author is making the point to us that that we all have one source. Now, there is some debate here, once again, in my study of this. Some would say this is talking about, when we're referring to the source, as our common humanity. Um, But the interpretation that I lean towards, the more redemptive and gospel interpretation, says that the one source is the redeeming plan of God the Father. So he's saying, those who he sanctifies and those who are sanctified, they all, are, they all belong to God. Now, I want to take a moment to make an important note here. Um, it is common in our day, in circles that at least will talk about God and acknowledge God, to say something like, quote, we are all children of God. Maybe you've heard that before. Say, well, you know, God is, uh, we're all children. We all belong to him. Listen, I love you enough to tell you this. That is not true. It is true that God created everyone. And it is true that he loves you. But it is not true in the salvation sense that we are all children of God. The true children of God are the ones who have been adopted into his family by his grace through faith in Christ. And so with that being said, let's see some incredible things here. Listen to me. You as a follower of Christ in this room, What this is saying is that you are being sanctified and you and Jesus have the same source, the redemption of our Father. This means Jesus is our big brother and we have the same Father, God. This is why we say things like church family isn't like family, it is family. Because in a very real sense, Jesus' blood is thicker than blood. When you're saved, you're not just given a personal relationship with Jesus, though that is true. You are bought into a family with the same source. (coughs) And then this takes another incredible gospel turn. Look at the next part. So because we have the same source, the redeeming plan of God, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. If we could actually believe this. Listen, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. Once you're in his family by faith, you are family. No matter what sin you've committed, no matter what suffering you've gone through, no matter your own shame, Jesus is all in with you. That's why the cross was so bloody. He died for the worst moments, the times when you can't lift your head. He is not ashamed of you. Everyone who trusts in him will not be put to shame. That's a promise from Romans 10, verse 11. 
And that means that as we live this out, we should be a shame-killing community. Of course we hate sin. Of course we hate sin in us and in the world. But the gospel response to sin is grace. And grace creates a culture where sinful shame is undone. He is not ashamed of us. Now, look at verse 12. This is the Old Testament verses to give reality to that. So he's not ashamed of us. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So this quote from Psalm 22, which is where he's pulling this from, is incredible. Psalm 22 is a cross and resurrection psalm. As Jesus is tasting death for us on the cross, he is actually quoting Psalm 22. And it's really brutal. It talks about the nature and extent of his suffering, but it also shows off the glory of his death. Look at this verse. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. A study note says this congregation is talking about the assembly of heaven. What does this mean? Not only is Jesus not ashamed of us, he invites us to sing with him, identifies with us to join in with the resurrection joy. Do you realize that heaven rejoices when one sinner repents? Jesus is joyful. Can you imagine actually tasting this and living it out? Can you see this glory, honor, overcoming your shame? Even if you limp all the way to heaven, a life of true faith in Christ ends in glory and honor and praise. I want you to see another verse that talks about this idea of God singing. This is from a minor prophet called Zephaniah. It's chapter 3, verse 17. These are things that can change your whole outlook and your fight against sin and fight for holiness. Verse 17, the prophet reminds the people, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. I hope you see the power of this, that God rejoices over his own, and it's not because of your performance. It is because Jesus Christ rescued you and you have come to him by faith and you are in his family. You're singing with Jesus and our Father will sing over us. It seems too good to be true, but it actually is. Back to verse 13 in Hebrews. He's quoting from Isaiah 8. It says this, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So it's another prophetic word showing us that we are children of God and Jesus brought us into this glory family. Okay, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So see the meaning here. Because the children God wanted share in flesh and blood, Jesus was going to do whatever it took to bring us into his family. Jesus puts on flesh and blood. But look, he didn't put on flesh and blood to come to earth and live among us to give us a big spiritual high five. He didn't come to say, great job, everyone. Keep it up, and this ends in glory. Not at all. He came on a war path to defeat your enemies, namely death and sin and the devil. Do you realize that you have enemies? One enemy is death. It is true that all of us will die, 
and it's a curse, and it's not good. Just because we believe in the resurrection doesn't mean that we don't see the pain and sting of death and what it causes. Death causes so much heartbreak. In some ways, it really is the fear beneath all of our fears. But what does our king do? Look at this. That through death, he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He destroyed death by taking it for us and rising again. And his rising foreshadows the rising that all of us will do one day. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says it this way. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Don't you love this? Our king kills our shame by putting our enemies to shame. Your enemy of death literally got a taste of its own medicine by him dying, defeating death by rising again so that you don't have to, if you're in Christ, actually taste it. You can be free from the crippling effects of guilt and shame in your sin. It is finished. No more condemnation because the one who can't accuse has been silenced. You can be free from the slavery of fearing death because your death has been killed in the death of Christ. And because he is alive, you will be too, forever. You can step out tonight from under the fake shackles of fear of death and condemnation. And they're fake because Jesus knocked the fangs out of the devil's mouth when he left death behind in the empty tomb. You realize the accusations from the devil, though they might be accurate in the sense that you still sin, they are not accurate in the condemning effect that they once had on you. You are free. All right, let's land the plane here, 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember, you are the offspring of Abraham in Christ. And so because he isn't ashamed of you and defeated your death and set you free from fear, you are helped. Look how, what that looks like. 17. Therefore, he had, to make, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in order to help you in the fullest gospel way, he had to put on flesh, made like us in every way except for sin. Jesus Christ is the perfect, merciful, and faithful high priest. Now, I don't want to spoil sermons to come in Hebrews, but you're going to see the beauty of him being our high priest in a later chapter. But for now, just understand this, especially for those of you that don't, maybe aren't familiar with your Old Testament. The high priest was an office in Israel that represented the go-between for God and his people. They offered sacrifices as a way of pointing toward gospel realities that sin can be forgiven. They were spiritual leaders that led God's old covenant people as they partook of the grace of God, lived on his mission, and obeyed him. And all of it pointed to the true and better high priest, Jesus. He's merciful. He is faithful. He never gets tired, always does what is right, and is always for you as your high priest. Now that word propitiation is just an amazing word that literally means a sacrifice to appease the wrath of something. And so our sin deserved wrath, but he was the propitiation so that God's wrath is not on you anymore, but was taken on Christ. 
And not only that, look at verse 18. Band, you can make your way up. Get ready to lead us. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted, and he never sinned. And he is there in the moment-by-moment battles for holiness, reminding you that he isn't ashamed of you, reminding you that the sin you are tempted by has no power, and silencing the accusations of a dead enemy, and reminding you in his love that you are his brother, you are his sister, and you are a son or daughter in the family of God. And I'm begging you tonight to let these realities fuel our obedience as we live for his glory alone. For those of you in Christ tonight, you can stand and sing knowing that your Father rejoices over you, Jesus is not ashamed of you, and the Spirit will help you every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, we just ask now that you would use this word to quiet our hearts. Lord, that somehow by your Spirit, the gospel would speak louder than our flesh tonight that would be reminded of these things that are true because of the death and resurrection of Christ. So Lord, help us sing, help us fellowship, help us to live this night um, by faith for your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.